What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Joe Bonamassa here with another episode of Live from Nerdville. Today we're broadcasting from the great Nashville, Tennessee, Nash Vegas, as they say. And my guest is world-renowned guitar player, singer, artist extraordinaire, my friend and yours, Celise Henderson. Thank you for being on. Welcome back to L.A., by the way. Thank you. Glad you to know? be back. It's, it's, you know, I call it a sunny place for shady people, and they're my kind of people. Right. <laughs> okay. Well, I guess I'm gonna learn. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Exactly. Uh, it, takes, it took me about three days, twenty years ago. Yeah, these these people say they're your friend. You know. Yeah. But uh, uh, how how you been? I've been good. I'm. You know that I just moved. I've lived in New York fifteen years, and I just made a six day long pilgrimage in a sixteen foot moving truck to LA with all my gear in my life. Um, so I'm tired, but I'm good. I'm good. Glad to be in the sun. Was it, uh, was it the first time you ever drove across country, um, uh, on your own? I mean, you've been in tour buses and, and yeah, well, luckily I did it with a friend. Thank God. And, you know, we were so, <laughs> we were so hopeful at the beginning of this trip that it was just going to be so fun and easy until you drive a truck, <laughs> until you drive a truck with thousands of pounds of things and, it's really that the cab, the, the truck cab is more narrow than the actual cargo space, as you know. So you never right. really can tell how much how much room you have on either side. It's really anxiety inducing. I kept thinking, I can't believe they just let anybody do this. I should not be allowed to drive this truck. Yeah, they have special licenses. You know, they, you know, they they, they call them um, uh, commercial drivers licenses, and they CDLs. Yeah. And you know, um, I I've befriended a lot of truckers and bus drivers in my career, and and I asked them, I said, like, so let me get this straight. I can literally buy a tour bus, yeah. okay, and they'll hand me the keys. I can I can drink a bunch of Red Bulls and drive from Los Angeles to New York nonstop, yeah. and that's perfectly legal. But if you have to drive more than 450 miles with a CDL, you have to stop. I'm like, right. going, why would they give unlicensed people? It's it, it it's amazing. It, well, I, well, I'm glad you got there safe and and um, welcome. So you know, I'm fascinated with your with your life and music you know because we, we're, we're friends and we know each other we've had con many conversations but you know uh, one of the things i always ask right off the bat on this show is is what what was the host you know there's there's the casual music fan there's the people that that see a guitar or they they hear a song and they go i don't know if i can live another day with myself if i don't get involved so who was your host? How, how did you become so in, you know, interested in music right off the bat? Well, I always say to people that I was literally born, I was born into a bed of music. Both of my parents are highly accomplished musicians and teachers. My dad has a double undergrad in piano performance and vocal performance, masters in choral conducting. My mother has a double undergrad in violin performance, vocal performance, masters in choral conducting. So just like super, super learned, cultured musicians as parents. Um, and music was just a part of every part of our life. My parents were teaching right. choir during the day, were instrumentalists um, sort of at night. We're also, my dad was the minister of music at our church. So it was literally like even sort of 
more sort of social gatherings were all centered around music. So I, I feel like how there are like intense sports families, that's just how it was with my family. We were like a music family, you know? Um, so yeah, it really started with them. And the thing with my parents, my dad in particular, I have uh, two sisters and all of us had to play an instrument. Like it's like, right. I mean, really, they said we had choice, but it was like piano or violin because that's what they both played. So they're like, you know, you're going to do one of these. And I started on the violin when I was two, which people don't believe, even though I was not doing anything. I was just standing there playing twinkle, twinkle, you know, for two years. But technically, I had a violin in my hand for two years. And then at four, I said I wanted to switch to classical piano. My dad said, "Okay, but that's it. You can't switch anymore. And then I played piano from four, I mean, studied really intensely from four until 17, 18. And I picked up a lot of stuff on the way. But my entrance really was through my family from like the very beginning. Right, right. You know, I I, um, I, uh, I, ha- I had an opportunity, and which could be my last professional show ever, if things keep going, <laughs> okay, was in Milwaukee. And the um, the symphony conductor of, of, of the... Uh, the, the master violinist, he was the conductor. Well, he's not the conductor, but he's the, 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 the head soloist, or I don't know what the term is. He yeah. brought his Stradivarius violin down. Mm. And, and it's like this, it's called the Lipinski Strad. And it's kind of, it's had a, a bit of a weird history of late because he was the, 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 the musician that, somebody actually held him up at gunpoint and stole the violin after a gig in Milwaukee. Oh, my and, God. Which they found out the hard way. It's kind of hard to sell a Stradivarius being yes. all accounted for. Yeah, sure. You know, anyway, oh he played this thing and it was like a, a, a it was like a, a it was an out of body experience for me because it, it, his touch, his tone, his feel and this instrument. I mean, it would it would fill the we were playing the we we're playing the the, the the theater there that he plays with the orchestra and um, it. It would fill the room without a PA. And then he goes, here, why don't you try to play a few things on it? And it was the most wretched sound. Antonio Stradivarius was rolling in his grave 300 (laughs) years later. And one of the things that that I want to know is, like, when did you know you had a knack for it? Because you studied classical piano. You, you, you. You're, you're, you know, obviously your family's very much in, in, um, you know, into music. When did you notice, like, the lesson, you started to transcend the lessons, and you're going, Um, you know what, I can figure, you start seeing it in slow motion. You you know know what I mean? That's an interesting question. Um, Well, I think the interesting thing about growing up with, in a family where everyone does music, um, I could tell from a pretty early age I, I don't know that I want to say that it's not necessarily that I felt more talented than everyone else because that's not accurate, but I knew that like, I don't know. I just, you could, I could feel that I had, that I had something different than everyone. And it, it, it felt like, um, it just, it felt like the center of my life from the, from the youngest, my youngest sort of memories so I don't know it, it probably I would probably say when I was in high school and I had really started to pick up other instruments and I got really interested in theater and I was 
you know, both of my parents, especially when we were growing up, were super religious. Um, so we weren't, we technically were not allowed to listen to like secular music. Right. Um, but I would sneak, but they, there were a handful of things that were like acceptable to them. Like I listened to a lot of Ella Fitzgerald. I listened to um, Barbara Streisand to sort of scratch the theater itch, like stuff like that, where they were sort of old timey that they sort of felt like, well, that's fine. Right. Um, but sort of in that process, you know, I, figured out on the tape deck how to take like a uh, blank tape and to record off the radio. So I would like record like Mariah Carey and Oasis and like all that stuff happening, like the nineties or whatever. Um, and I just would, I just would day in and day out, hours and hours and hours be obsessed with studying this music, the musicality of it, lyrics and all of that stuff. So I just, I don't know if I can necessarily pinpoint, this is when I knew that I could transcend the lesson necessarily, but I do know the older and the older that I got, in particular in high school, it felt like there was this um, real lifelong love that I, I knew that I was like gone for good. You know what I mean? I'm like, there's it's, nothing else but this. It's a pilot light, you know? It's, it's yeah. like lighting a pilot light and it's like some people have it and then some people just, they play casually and it's a, it's a yeah. hobby and then, then there's, right. But like you and I was like, man, it's, I, I want to get into this thing, this you know? It. Yeah. Totally. So I, this is one of the things I was going to ask you about the, you know, like, you know, growing up in a gospel family. Mm -hmm. um, did you, did you, as a rebellious teenager, have like a secret stash of secular music? You have your Mariah, you have yeah. your, uh, you have yeah. your Jimi Hendrix. And then I you know, did. did, did yeah, they ever catch you listening to like Purple Haze? And you're like, what the hell is that? Yeah. I mean, the thing is, you know, the guitar part came much later in life for me, as we talked about. Yeah. It was, I think it started with, I don't know, you know, I've got two other sisters who I feel like are, are saints. I'm definitely the center of the three. So right. I always was sort of um, kind of trying to bend the rules. And I, I had, you know, an ever increasing stash of of blank tapes where I was just uh, taping things off the radio. And um, I moved out of my home pretty young, 17, 18. And by the time that happened, then it, it felt like I started to discover all this music I hadn't heard. That's when I started hearing um, Hendrix and Joe Cocker. And um, I mean, just a lot of the music from the seventies in particular, I mean, is so influential from all of us, for all of us, but especially around guitar. I mean, that stuff is like um, so unparalleled. So yeah, I mean, even just because I wasn't allowed to listen to secular music certainly didn't mean that I didn't found ways around it. You, you find you know? it, you know, I mean, you've yeah. played, I mean, you've played, you know, on stage with everyone from like Mariah Carey, Melissa Etheridge, um, Trey Anastasio from fish yeah. and fish, um, Lizzo. Yeah. And, um, what would, tell me what was, what was it like though? You know, being a girl and, and, and taping stuff off the radio, the moment you stepped on the stage with Mariah Carey at the beginning. Yeah. You're going, like, I used to tape you off the radio. Yes, totally. Um, you know, I feel like I've been really fortunate to work with a lot of really amazing people. And I've certainly had moments with all of them where I've thought, like, wow, this is, like, really amazing. But Mariah Carey is probably, of that list, the only one where I, I legitimately was in tears on stage, <laughs> which kind of surprised me because I, I did a run of shows with her at the beacon, her like Christmas, like week of shows. And the nature of how they rehearsed that show 
you don't really see, I didn't see her until dress rehearsal that day, but we had been rehearsing like sort of the week leading up. So they get the band and the dancers and the singers and the choir and everybody together. So I spent all this time in this space just thinking like, oh, she'll come and it'll be nice and we'll do the gig and whatever. But, you know, we did sound check and I, and, um, you know, felt like kind of really magical. But once we got to um, the actual show and she came out and started singing uh, the intro of All I Want for Christmas, I like lost my mind. Right. I was like, I just can't. I mean, it's you, you cannot escape that song. You've heard it, you know, I'm, right. I'm an 80s kid. I've heard that song literally every single year of my life, it feels like. So, yeah, it really was so special. And I immediately felt like, you know, 12 you know i just felt yeah. like i can't believe i'm doing this this is incredible and, and i and correct me if i'm wrong and i'm sure if if i am wrong the internet will correct me post haste um <laughs> is i believe that 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 all i want for christmas song is if not the close to being the best-selling christmas song of all time could possibly be the biggest christmas song of all time Ever, even right. even bigger than rudolph the red-nosed reindeer you yes, know what I mean? it's, it's just because Everybody had that on the CD. My mom played it, and you know, during during when she was making Christmas dinner and stuff right. like that. So tell me, like, all right, you're playing piano, you're singing. Yeah. And how did you discover the voice? Were you formally trained, or did you just kind of like go, well, you know, let me try this singing thing? Because obviously you're in church and you sing along, yeah, and then, sure. but it's a it's a giant leap from yeah. singing along with the choir or singing along, you know, just mm -hmm. in an ensemble to going, give me the mic. Let me, let me, let me, let me yeah. take a verse. <laughs> right. So I would actually say my doorway into music from then until now, it's, it's like voice before kind of everything else. Cause my parents really, even though they're like highly trained instrumentalists, they're really choir teachers at heart. They're voice teachers. Like, so it's right. always really been about the voice and, um, you know, my mom tells this story uh, often, actually, of her being a choir director at this church we used to go to called Center of Hope in Oakland, California. And um, when she would be up at the choir, I think at the time it was only myself and my older sister. I must have been like two or three years old. Right. And she would go up to the to the choir stand and myself and my uh, older sister would sit in the pew with like another woman from the church and she'd say you know can you watch them for the 15 minutes i'm going to be up on stage so she would go up to you know the choir stand or whatever and this particular sunday you know she's leaving she's saying okay you guys sit here with um you know her friend and she went up to the choir stand and i guess there's a time where she turns around and hears the church laughing and i found my way up the steps to the microphone right and then very quickly you know my mom's friend goes and grabs me, brings me back to the pew uh, to sit down. And this happens a bunch of times, I guess three or four times. And finally, the pa uh, the preacher says, just let her, let the baby sing. And I guess there's some video floating around of me at two or three years old with no words, with no language, just like singing and singing and just right. like really enjoying the spotlight. So it was, <laughs> that was in me from, I mean, my earliest memories are of me singing to a crowd you know and how how important it is, is how important is it um to be an entertainer as well because there's a lot of great musicians a lot of great singers 
that can stand up there and yeah. and 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 wow the greatest of musicians. Yeah. But but visually and as far as being a total package, yeah, lack something. See, when I see yeah. you perform, I see a, not only a great singer, guitarist, pianist. Um, uh, but also an entertainer mm-hmm. and, and, you know, that's, that's the X factor yeah. in, you know, in a lot, in, in a lot of people's careers. How would you, how would you describe your, your, your stage persona? Is, is, is it, is it the same person that's off stage or, or do you, do you kind of turn on a switch and put, you know, put on like a, you know, like a, put a different aura about your, yeah. your stage character? Well, I think that actually answers your earlier question about really the difference between like myself and my family truly is I think I'm an entertainer where where my sisters, my parents who are all really talented don't really necessarily have that thing. Um, I think I learned in particular from like having a theatrical background, how important it is to know how to bring people along with you because mm-hmm. you and I both know what it is to go to a theater, to an arena, to a club and to see someone incredible with an incredible facility and half the room is in, is lost in conversation, could care less, you know? Right. And, and conversely, I have certainly seen performances where I'm like, if I broke down these in the individual parts of this, it's not necessarily the best music or the best technique or the best voice, but there's something so compelling about that person. You can't look away. So I I would say for myself, it doesn't necessarily feel like, I know there are some people who get on stage and it's like, now I'm wearing like my stage hat. And then when I leave, it's off. I feel like I am essentially just like an, a very amplified version of myself. It's right. I don't I don't become someone new. Um, I think I just have learned, yeah, especially with a lot of a lot of years um, in theater and TV, how to grab every single person in the room it's more important to me like from the beginning it's like if you're the usher i want you to come along with me it's star time well walter king bb's nephew always used to introduce Mm -hmm. him he played saxophone and they would do a two-song warm-up set even if they had an opening act it was the sound they didn't sound check they just were like they did a little they did a shuffle and a little in a little slow blues with some adult chords that bb would never play (laughs) over a million years you know that was their they're exercising their jazz chops yeah and then next thing you know they break into this upbeat shuffle and then ladies and gentlemen it's star time and I remember the first time I saw that and BB didn't have to do anything except walk out and he had everything. And it was it. Yeah. And it, I was like, mind blown going, right. there's your, there's your sign. Tell me about your experience in TV and Broadway. Cause not a lot of people know that. And, and, and you've been on shows like 30 rock, the electric company yeah. done Broadway. How'd you yeah. get into, how'd you get into theater? Like who, who did you seek that out? Or did you, did you kind of, Say, hey, somebody go, hey, you would be good at doing this. Yeah, so it's actually, I think people's perception of me, especially as of late, I think people assume I've been this like lifelong musician, like artist thing, side woman thing, and then maybe I did some like theater and TV on the side when it's actually the opposite. I came to New York 
to be on Broadway. Like it was always about theater and music was this sort of thing where, because I grew up and it was such an inevitable thing in my life. You know, I'm like, I always know that I'll be playing music in some capacity, but I had my eyes really set on the marquee, you know, these, right, you know, these, marquees right. of these theater shows. Um, so yeah, I started my first like really big, big job was in the first national tour of Wicked back in 2000. Gosh, that was 2005, 2006. Um, I was in that company touring and then I, and then I landed in New York and did more stuff there and did a, you know, did a Broadway revival and all that stuff. And, and I had about 10 years, I would say. I started in theater young, I mean, 17, right? So I had about 10 years of doing theatrical and television stuff uh, and loving it and working a lot. But when I was at the, uh, I remember being at the opening night of the last Broadway show I did, which is um, the revival of Godspell. Mm. I remember being there and in the context of that show, for anybody that knows Godspell, it's sort of random. It's like this, it's like the modern retelling of the book of Matthew, which is so right. weird, but it's a fun show. Um, and unless you play Jesus or Judas, the other eight characters, uh, myself being one of them, your technical character name is yourself, even though I wasn't necessarily playing myself, it's just the way that they do it in the right. show. And the director had this concept for the show of really wanting to bring each person's like individual sort of talents to the forefront. So in this show, I played guitar, I played ukulele, I wrote this like spoken word thing and played djembe. I mean, it was like so much of me infused in what I was doing. And I remember very clearly on the opening night of that show, looking around to my other cast members who were all just so excited and so thrilled about that night. And where I was certainly happy to be there, I really knew that I had more to say than the confinements of someone else's words. I'm like, I just, I, right. I have more to say than this. So when that show finished, I, called my agents at the time, my uh, legit agents and my commercial agents and said, you know, I'm going to step away from doing this kind of work for a bit and put my energy like solely into music. I'm just curious, like if I put the same amount of focus intensity that I have in the last 10 years in a different direction, what might happen? So, right. um, yeah, I mean, theater and TV was, was sort of the acting part was always the thing really for me from the beginning. And I'm by no means done with that kind of work. I it, I love acting a lot. I just knew that wanting to have my own music career, it would take some cultivating, you know? It's like really, really focused energy. So I just kind of changed my course. It's like total commitment. You have to do yeah, it, center it or else, exactly right. or else you that's kind right. of live in these brackish waters of like, I'm, I'm still doing this, but I don't yeah. have enough time to really right. do it to go. I, I, you know, my twisted sense of humor, you know me. I'm like, I'm like sitting there when you call your agent and yeah, you know, you're, you're, you're on Broadway, you're working a lot. And you would be like, yeah, it's what are you talking about? He's got a cigar. What are you, it's like, what are you talking about? You're hot. You're hot. I got offers all over town, you know? <laughs> yes. I mean, that's kind of not real. And I still, I mean, I think now because there's been enough things that I've done that have been, people have seen in the last couple of years, I think people get it, but there are many years with colleagues and friends who didn't understand. I mean, they were like, I don't get it. I mean, because I, the decision wasn't glamorous. It meant that I 
leaving that work was like, okay, well now I'm like babysitting. Now I'm like working at a furniture store. Like I had to pay the bills, right? Pay the bills, right. Um, Yeah. So, but I just knew, I knew that I wanted something different, you know? Tell me how much the music of Sister Rosetta Tharp means to you. Mm. I mean, we, we've gone down the rabbit holes like we, we're, we're, we're like detectives, you know, yeah. Matt, where's the guitar? Let's say there's a scratch yes. there. Let's try to line yes. up. The, let's find the SG. Let's yes. find, the, you know, totally. the, 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 was it with the, it was a, did he have a, she, she had a Barney Kessel maybe. And, yes, she had a uh, wonderful collection. I, you know, as I've told to you, I'm just like really, 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 really in my life hope to one day find one of her axes. I mean, it would be, the, the dream would be the SG, but I'm like, someone has these guitars. They're somewhere. They're somewhere. You know what I mean? Um, and I just wonder, whoever has them, do you do they understand what they have? I feel like if they did, we would know about it. We would know this person would be like, hey, I've got this. Don't you think? Well, you know, you know the thing is, about, I would say, seven or eight years ago, um, a guy, a friend of mine um, named Andy uh, Babichuk, and he's from upstate New York, and he deals in a yeah. lot of Beatles memorabilia. He sure. he found a random 64 Stratocaster, and as he did the research, figured out after 40 years that it was Bob Dylan's guitar that he played at the Newport Folk Festival the day of the night he went electric. Oh my God. And it was lost on a plane and Bob never, he was just another guitar, wasn't valuable. It was just Bob's guitar and they, they the airlines lost right. it and it went to somebody and went to somebody and somebody did the, some, you know, Andy did the, 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 the homework and figured out it was the one. You can identify it from the grain and the wood and everything. To me, if, if those get, those Sister Rosetta Tharp guitars are out there. It's going to take something like that, like a, a, a random white SG custom 61 with the sideways vibrato. Yeah. And a, uh, somebody with a magnifying glass going, yeah. that scratch looks like that scratch, you know, yeah. and, and there's identifying marks. You know, like, tell me about her music. Because, you know, like, getting to know your background, I mean, it, it makes sense. She was, a, she was a rocker, but she was a gospel singer. Yeah, and, totally. And she was as wild as they come. And it was like yeah. this, it was such a unique act. Yeah. And it was so, it was so authentic. It was just her. Yeah, and and right. like tune to C sharp, like death metal tuning yes, and go, know. you know? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think, well, first of all, I think on the most basic of levels, it's hard to not come across one of those YouTubes of her in black and white freaking rocky and sg and you sort of go wait when was this what year was this yeah. you know and, and why when we talk about you know we talk about rock and roll we you know and it's the beatles and stones and 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 zeppelin and they all quote you know or all attribute everything to muddy waters and chuck berry and these guys right but yet chuck berry and muddy waters are talking about sister rosetta tharp right. you know it's like i i think She's is such an incredibly important foundational piece of our music history that, thank God, we're just starting to discuss, you know, on sort of a more of a national level. But I think on a personal level, like physically, she kind of looks like my grandmother, my dad's mom. 
and you know, honestly, this the sort of the juxtaposition between I think this music, this style of music that certainly when you're going up in the church, you're sort of taught like, oh, not rock and roll, you know, even though like that's what she was playing. And you know, they marketed her at the time as like a, a gospel artist, and technically she was singing, you know, this sort of spiritual music, but it's like that is you're listening. To rock and roll in every song that you, that you hear from her, right? So I, I just love the rebellious nature of her. She's fucking great. Oh, sorry, language. She's got. Great, I don't care. Great it's 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 the internet. Oh, like, go good. Um, her sense of rhythm is so fantastic. Um, talk about an entertainer, right? Every single inter- it clip you see, it's like she brings every single person with her. So she just she just feels. I feel as a black female playing electric guitar I'm very clear of the shoulders that I stand on you know and I think if there's any way in the work that I do and the opportunities that I have that I can remind people that this art form it's a black art form I mean you know it's just not in the conversation but it's like rock and roll music is available to everyone but it's it starts with us and she's a really big part of of the sort of correcting of history, I think, you know, and the, um, way, and the way the history is told. Like there's that famous scene in the movie Ray where he decides to take gospel chord structures mm-hmm. and sing secular lyrics. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I think it was then his girlfriend or whatever was like, Ray, what oh, are Ray. you doing? This right. is, what, you know, it, it was a big deal, right, yeah. that he did that. Mm-hmm. And do you think if, Sister Rosetta Tharp made a conscious decision to just go, okay, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to go from singing spiritual music and now I'm, I'm going to make the, the, the lyrics rock and roll. Like, mm-hmm. do you think she would have been a bigger star than she was? And we would, wouldn't have to wait seven, 60 years to have these discussions about it. Do you think she'd be like, like the female Elvis? Like, cause I mean, she would, she would, on any stage, she w- she could headline over anybody at that. Yeah, point. sure. She could headline. Yeah. She was just a star. She had the voice. She had the guitar playing. It was it was a total package. But she was playing yeah. spiritual music, and then and again, you get labeled gospel and yeah. spiritual. And then then sure. there's only so much marketing they're going to throw at that at the totally. time. Well, you know, for just a little point of reference, she was a pretty big star in her time. Um, yeah, I mean, certainly. Uh, for any black artist at that time, I mean that that's the sort of the piece that's so challenging when we look at history because the ceilings existed that did with her uh, because she was black and because she was a woman, right? So, but then sort of conversely, I I think you and I were talking about this. I I found, I tracked down um, the uh, record of her wedding, of her third wedding, which happened at uh, Griffith Stadium where uh, I think 20,000 people were, were in attendance. She charged tickets. The the first oh, yeah. side A is is the wedding ceremony and the sort of music leading up to that. And then side B is is her set with the rosettes right. and the jodeniers. It's so good. So you know, I think I don't necessarily think she would have been bigger because I, I it seems like at least in in the reading that I've done, there's a great book about her called Shout Sister Shout, written by Gail Wald. That is so great. Um, she seems to have been, I think that she consistently says in that book, you know, she was the uh, highest paid, paid, uh, 
female artists at the time, sometimes highest played black artists at the time. Right. Um, she and, and Mahalia Jackson sort of rivaled one another, certainly yes. in that space. Um, but I think the only way it would have been completely different in terms of her being a big part of what we talk about in the history of music is if her gender was different and her race was different. I just think that's just the unfortunate part of our history that we're, it's slowly but surely um, having to look back and, and go, well, who are the people that we didn't really sort of give the due that they were really owed, you know? Right, right. I mean, there's a, um, you know, there's a, there's a thing, you know, uh, one of the things that I, I was thinking about before we got on this call was your song freedom i was listening to it and um and one of the questions i wanted to ask you in in 2020 how important is activism in music today <sighs> like you know i mean it's because yeah. it's going back to the days of the woody guthrie's the sam cooks yeah asking the big questions on a yeah. on a fundamental level sure, you know sure, it, sure. it's like you know seems like the the, the kind of just transient pop stuff is kind of fading and now now it's now it's getting back to the stuff where it was in the early 60s yeah. you know a tumultuous time in our past when things mm -hmm. slowly started to change for the better but still sure. didn't get there how important is activism in 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 your life and music sure. Are you, do you consciously think of that and, and what you're yes. saying oh my god it is the center of so much i think um you know, I come from, I don't consider myself incredibly religious, but I do consider myself very spiritual. And I think um, I am forever thinking about how to use what I have to help, you know, in, in whatever way. Um, and it's hard for me to think about not speaking to the times that we're in because we're in the times that we're in. You know, Maya Angelou says, very often it's like it's the it's the artist's job um to sing it to write it to dance it to be it you know we are when when you know people look back in a hundred years it's sort of like what do we want to have been how do people really see what has happened in the time it's so often in music right so i think for myself um I, I, it's certainly not that i only write about political and social issues, but I live in a life where I, where I am deeply affected by this world as we all are. And I find it really challenging to not speak to what's going on. Sure. And how in, you know, how in your mind, like, like when you write a song that socially has a, a message, mm -hmm. okay, how do you see that trickle down to actually helping the movement? Like, like take, yeah. take me through the, the different, uh, they call them tranches of, of sure. like, I have a song, I, I'm donating to these causes, the mm -hmm. proceeds to this song. Sure. And then how does that money that get donate, gets donated to those causes help the, help the, the, the actual on the ground change? Sure. So everyone, there's like, there's a certain aspect of this, at least for me, I've had to sort of like you have to kind of compartmentalize because, you know, it's like sort of saying like, well, what do you want to do? Well, I want to feed the hungry children. You know, it's like, well, there are a lot of children that are hungry. Right. And if I, if I stay in that place, which I think where a lot of people go, 
where everything can feel so overwhelming. And it's like, there's no way that I have the power to affect all this great change. So I just won't do anything. I just, it's just too much where I sort of think, well, what can I do now? Where can I start now? Who can I affect now? And with, with like a song or a project like Freedom, I wrote this song initially partially to sort of exercise the feelings I was having right. and partially to hopefully give a voice and hope to other people that might be feeling the same. That's like the basic sort of core uh, intention of something like that. But then in the thinking of how to record it, how to release it, how to do a video around it, it's like, well, what can I do with this thing that can contribute in any way? So I'm like, well, if any money comes in, if we get, you know, any money from downloads or streams, if there's any income that comes from streaming on YouTube or whatever, whatever those proceeds are, let me look and see what organizations are doing work that um, really speak to me, really speak to my heart, right? And it happened to be that I really love the work of Campaign Zero and the movement for Black Lives. I'm like, all right, well then whatever money comes from this thing, um, I can give to these organizations. And then I think the way that that works, I mean, I think the beautiful thing about donating to organizations that are doing work that you love is that it sort of alleviates it alleviates the pressure of having to figure everything out. If you do your due diligence, if you believe in the tenets of the ACLU, right? right? And you donate to the ACLU, the wonderful thing is that you can at any time check in with the ACLU and see where is money going? What is it? What? How is it being distributed? You know what I mean? So Transparency. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right. For sure. So I, you know, as far as I know, I don't have any plans of starting a nonprofit. Like, you know, I probably... Right. Um, won't ever do that, but I do, when I think about the artists that I love the most uh, from a songwriting perspective, it's artists that speak to the times. It's the Marvin Gaye's, it's the Joni Mitchell's, it's the Dylan's, you know, and um, these are songs still that ring so true to us because they were speaking in an ultimate truth, I think. What's the greatest prote- protest song in your mind? Not to put you on the spot. It just it just popped into my mind. The greatest protest song. Oh my gosh. Well, I, there's so many fantastic ones. I mean, can I tell you two that I listen to often? How about that? Sure, I'll take I two. What's going on is like it's just the song feels good. Like before you yeah. even get to the lyrics, it just yeah. feels. The track starts with like, it sounds like a block party. You know what I mean? It's yeah. just like people hanging around. Um, and I think that's it's such brilliant songwriting too, where when you can bring people in in a way and they're getting a message without even really knowing it, you right. know, and then they're singing the lyrics back and it's like, oh, wait a minute, you know? Um, and then I also listen to, I don't know if this entirely qualifies as a protest song, but I think maybe um, Odetta, Odetta James singing Oh Freedom is like a pretty big one that is also, um, I don't know, there's there's something about it that's really pure. There's something about it that feels like it connects to all the generations. There's something about it that's really um, spiritual and reverent. Um, but yeah, those would probably be my two at the moment. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, my favorites are I have I, it's a tie, and I, and I, it, to me, I the criteria I use for a great protest song is it's a snapshot in time, and sure. was, so was the song written in a time that was needed to be written, not sure. retroactively, not forward thinking. Mm, sure, sure, it's in the moment. You know, my favorite, obviously, Sam Cooke, change is going to come. Yeah, I believe yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. You had me at hello. Yep, you know? sure. I was, you know, I was born by the river. You had me. Yeah. Whatever. You, yes. <laughs> and. Timely fashion says everything in, that it needed to say and inspired people yeah. at a time they needed inspired. James Brown, say it loud. I'm black oh, and I'm proud. Yeah, sure. sure. And I watched his I watched his documentary and and it was they they were talking about the impact because he was a big he was a big star at the point and that song was risky for him, but he did it anyway. Yeah. And it and it, and it inspired you know it, it lit a fire. Yeah. You know, right. tell, tell me, um, tell me like, you know, a young, a young female singer, guitarist, musician looks up to you, a young male guitar player, singer looks up to you, a, a young human. Okay. Yes. <laughs> okay. Sure. A young humanoid wanting to get into, into music. What's the best advice for auditioning and networking? Oh, um, Wow. Well, I've had great success on the auditioning side. If you if you think about going into the room and not trying to get something, but trying to give something, it completely changes the energy. Wow, that's an interest, very interesting perspective. Well, because that, I feel like that's the nature of auditioning. I'm I'm here to get the job. Yes, right. But when you come into the room. I'm sure you've felt this in your life with like, I don't know how you work with the musicians you have, but if you've ever auditioned anybody ever, right. you can feel that energy of just like, I, you know, I really want this and I just, I hope it goes well. And like, even if that person is, it's like, it's, a, you know, it's like going on a first date. If this person is like so attractive and so successful and so intelligent and all of these things, but there's this energy of like, I really want this. I really need this. There's something about it that's like, it's hard to trust. You, it just it, just, it does something, right? Desperation. And, they can yeah. sense, people can sense desperation That's or right. or and over their or over not zealous but over you know anxious yeah, to, right. to 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 get involved. Right, which is not necessarily it has nothing to do with someone's like worthiness or talent because that person could still be incredibly talented. But there's just an energy about it. I think that puts people off. But if I go into the room, well, I'll, I'll say it like this, even though it's like not exactly the same thing, but I think you'll, you can understand the, the parallel. When I was hired to play with Lizzo, it came sort of randomly out of nowhere. And I thought, well, this is a cool way to end the year. This will be fun. And I had no, no idea what we were really sort of doing. I had no idea that it was going to end up being this feature for me. I mean, truly. So when I get the music sent and we get into the room and then I, and then it starts to become clear that I'm like, Oh, I'm going to start the number with her and all of this. It felt like I kept hearing from friends and family or, or sort of people around me like, Oh my God, are you excited? Like, this is going to be a really big deal. It's going to be a really big moment. And I swear that not only did I not believe I wouldn't allow myself to think about what it might do for me. Cause I'm like, that's it. 
I just think that's a trap. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I'm like, right. what I did try to do in particular on dress rehearsal day and the day that we taped is I went into the room and I kept saying to myself that I'm like, I want to be of service today. I want to be able to set the energy up for this woman for it to be, because it was a huge performance. It was a huge appearance for her, right? So I'm like, and I feel like if I went into the room so focused on how am I going to look and how's it going to be perceived and how's it, like all of this stuff, then it's like, it's just a rabbit hole. And then that energy is what people get from you. But I went into that space going like, I am here to support this woman. I'm here about sort of the bigger causality of all of this. And if whatever sort of the outcome is, is what it is. I'm just here to do a gig. And then subsequently, it ended up sort of randomly being one of the most important, like, professional moments of my life, which I didn't expect, but it was. So I, I bring that parallel to this audition piece because I think, I just think there's something more grounding about thinking, like, if these people have been hearing people sing at them all day, if these people have been hearing people, like, sort of shred at them all day, right. how can I offer up just a little bit of music? You know, how can yeah. I offer up something that, they act, that actually might make them feel something. And then great. If a job comes in that great, but if it doesn't, it doesn't, but I've had a good experience and I've offered up something really authentic and real, you know? Well, that's, you know, that's, that's, that's a, that, that's a great way of looking at it because, you know, I've been in situations where people are auditioning for the group or trying out for the group or yeah. out, you know, I, hell, I even tried out for UFO when I was 18. I was, yeah, right. Wanted me <laughs> right. To, you know, wanted me to replace Michael Shanker, which was would have been ill-advised if they hired me. And um, it's it's the the word is frantic. And if you put off the vibe that you're frantic, and sometimes those situations around large, you know, pop stars, the very yeah. famous, you know, huge, I mean, like Lizzo's, she's yeah. huge pop star. You know, yeah. I, I would I would consider it pop music. I probably yeah. should say that. <laughs> yeah. it's pop music. I, I don't know anymore. I don't know. Is it? It's, yes. pop, it's pop music. Yeah. We can agree on that. And yeah. a lot of times, you know, just to get her in the room requires lots of handling and publicists yeah. and people on phones going. You know, and, it, yeah, yeah. and they're frantic. Yeah. So the fact that That's you true. offer this thing, you, you offer this kind of time compression, going. Yeah. I gotcha. Yeah. And that that is a great piece of advice for anybody auditioning and wanting in because that that's going to get you the job. It's yeah. it's create creating this going. Hey, I I'm going to go hang with the cats, you know, because everybody's yeah. just a mu musician. That's right. When you that's played right. Saturday Night Live with Lizzo, how many phone calls did you get the next day? <laughs> I um. I truly couldn't tell you because I've never, <laughs> I, I've never had that experience where I'm like my phone, the voicemail box is full and I just have been asleep for eight hours. I don't know how possibly, right. you know, and it was, it was sort of the amount of people reaching out that next day times then sort of the, the months to follow of just more and more people. I mean, I, 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 if I had any idea of how many people would watch it, like how many people just would be tuning into that moment, I, I, I'm sure I would have fucked the whole thing up. I mean, you know what I mean? I mean, I really, yeah. I, I would thank God with such uh, 
naivete, I've done t television appearances and, and other facets before where I know like, okay, people are watching, but I just don't think I really grasped like, well, because it's Lizzo and it's Eddie Murphy's return after, you know, it was 20, 30 years, it's, they're really grabbing like every possible sort of audience member you could think of is <laughs> we'll watching watching this, you know, um, which ended up sort of working out. So yeah, that's all to say, I, I don't know a person who didn't reach out to me <laughs> at that time. I, yeah, I mean, like I always tell, I always tell like you know my tour manager people around me. It's like it's like you know like if you play a big festival, you like you know there's like seventy thousand people out there. You go, I don't want to know. I, yeah. I I like I, I operate on the on, on on. I like to know a lot about my business and life and and things. Sure. I like to be informed. I go, but sometimes ignorance is bliss. Just let me do my gig. Like there's three hundred people out there. I'll be That's better right. if I'm not thinking about it. Well, and this is the great thing about SNL, which is why I think I felt so comfortable. In this space, it's a club gig. I mean, it's just right. like, it's you know what I mean? It's the crew. And then, you know, you've got this sort of like a uh, kind of bleacher style uh, seating of people. But ultimately, I don't know, in that space, it is like a couple hundred people. So for me, when we got on what felt like a small club cabaret stage. I'm like, well, this, I do this all the time. Okay. It happened to be there were four or five cameras there. I don't know what those things are doing. I know that there are people out here. Right. You know what I mean? So, and you have experience in front of the camera, which helps you. Yeah. So you're not intimidated by the red light yeah, and, and anything right. else. You know, I mean, yeah. that's, that's a, that's a, that's a big thing to overcome for, for, for a lot of people. And, you know, mm -hmm. the thing I always tell people about television studios, you know, anything from Saturday night live to Letterman. Yeah. Be whatever they're smaller than you think they look yes, big. They, they look they look big they make them look bigger than they are on tv yeah. but yeah. You, you you walk in the insolvent theater you know there's paul and there's dave and i'm sitting there sitting That's in with it. the band and i go uh, this is this looks a lot bigger on tv That's right. That's you know right. but um anyway to wrap up um i'd like to tell um i like to tell the folks out there how you and i met hmm. And we met because because sometimes I knee jerk, and I and I and I do things without thinking them all the way through in 360 degrees, and 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 I and I posted something. We won't get into it. I posted something that seemed a bit insensitive, and and came off insensitive, even though the intent was right. But it I, I did not think it through, being an yeah. attack. And with all the with all the comments, I got a note from you which we had never met before. And it was yeah. the sweetest, most concisely written note about how you disagreed with me. And I will never forget that, how nicely you put it. And you were like, listen, let me explain to you. There's another side to this that you're not, yeah. that you're not, that you're not seeing. And yeah. instead of shouting at me, you said, this is, these are the points of view. And I, I, I responded and I said, you know, to be honest with you, that was the sweetest thing anybody's ever written to me. And I understand why you disagree with me. And I understand um, that, that this was a very tone deaf thing to, 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 to post. Okay. So my question is, is, is like, do you think that needs to happen times like 300 million when, mm. when people yeah. disagree with each other? That yeah. you, you can disagree. You can you go, hey, listen, dude, what the hell are you thinking? Let me show you. Yeah. Let, me, let me let me educate you a little bit, okay? Sure. Without sure. going, you're worse than 10 Stalins and a Hitler. Yes. Okay. Sure, sure. 
I mean, I definitely, I really, really, really hate cancel culture a lot because mm. I don't think it gives, it doesn't give any room for change. It doesn't give any room for someone to make an amends. It doesn't give room for people to be human and go, oh, I didn't, I didn't think of that. I hadn't considered that. So yeah, I mean, I, I think in a dream world, we would all have the willingness to extend ourselves to people that I think, at least I want to believe, most people that do or say things that are, that are hurtful, I think most of the time are coming from a place of ignorance. I think inherently people are good. I do. Right. Um, that certainly doesn't mean that there's not plenty of people who just suck and are just not interested in doing anything but sucking. And you can't really help that. But um, I guess in writing a note like I wrote to you or to anyone, it is simultaneously trying to trying to have compassion and communicate something from a place of compassion for one other person and also giving more compassion to myself when I inevitably make mistakes, when I inevitably hurt someone. So, yeah. And, and I guess I would also add to that though, I guess on the flip side, we're also in such tenuous times. I understand why there are a lot of people who don't have the ability to do that let that right now either you know what i mean i'm not right. saying i agree but um it's hard as you know in any situation when you when you're hurt when you've been hurt by something it's a really challenging thing to say i'm gonna put that aside for a second and try to sort of try to take action towards the greater good i think that's where we should all aim to be but I certainly don't judge anyone who can't right now. You know? Right. Right. Well, I, I think, you know, my take on cancel culture is to me, it seems very a topical feel good solution yeah. in a short term when the long term game is being ignored. Yeah. And sure. to destroy someone's life work over a quote or something that they may have been completely wrong about but maybe just didn't think it through or yeah. came from the right place or in the in the in the in the case of look at look at nick cannon he's hosting a show like this and he's just somebody who's saying something crazy and he's like he's just yeah. being a host he's probably thinking yeah. of the next question but he yeah. didn't he didn't in the moment like in the moment go wait a minute uh, you know it, it, yeah. you're thinking on you know you're thinking on your feet here and and, and it's like and then he was canceled like, yeah. you know, and you're just like, that's sure. somebody's life's work there that, that gets canceled over something that really isn't, isn't going to solve anything, mm. you know? And it's, it's a, it's a, it's a strange time, but I, I mean, I, like, like I told you, I like, I always will remember that and I always will appreciate that. And I, 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 I appreciate your friendship and I, I, and I, I appreciate your, your music. And I, and I love the fact that you are, you are now an Angelino and, and we, we, we can, we can hang out, you know? Yeah. And, yes. Uh, oh, I can't wait to get my picture in front of the Nerville sign. Are you kidding? Come on, let's do it. <laughs> we got, we got to wait till, well, in the summertime, we got to wait till like seven o'clock and then it really pops. Not okay. that I thought about that. <laughs> you can't do it during the day. The sun, yeah, 
But right. I, I did figure out the nerd bill sign. The poor thing is five years old, and the sun's starting to bleach out the colors. They're not as vivid, so I'm like, really, thinking getting the paint out and you know, touching her up I'm a little like, bit. No, I mean that's kind of, that kind of might be cool. Like that's what makes it legitimate. It's like it's been here. It's an institution. It's 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 a Laurel Canyon institution yeah. that I think some people think is a liquor store that's located on the top of the the hill. You know. Yeah, <laughs> sure. But you know the thing about when you're making signs like that. You got to go all the way crazy. You got to get the sure. gotta get the good version, the mechanical. Yeah. So, Lise, thank you so much for being on. You, I, yeah. I, I, such great advice for for you know people getting involved in in in, in music and and everything. And 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 uh, I think the world of your playing, your singing, and and I think the world of you. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for having me. This has been another exciting edition of Live from Nerdville. Thank you for tuning in. Until next time, ladies and gentlemen.